This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. You know, this morning we have an incredible privilege to have with us a great, great man of God and a friend of this house. His name's Pastor Steve Merle. And uh, Pastor Steve has uh, started a church in the Philippines that has uh, done okay, I think, in God's eyes. And uh, Victory Church over there has done an amazing job with over 62,000 people in their church currently right now. They've got to 15 locations, I believe 107 weekend services. Can you say uh, it takes a few volunteers to pull that off? And uh, uh, they actually run their weekend services all the way through to Wednesday morning. There's so many services and so many people getting saved. Uh, in that, they also have about 10,000 uh, discipleship small groups that they're running throughout the uh, nation doing amazing things. They planted churches in multiple cities and many different nations. And he also is the president of a group called Every Nation, which is with churches and campus ministries. And there are about 70 different nations and has done an amazing God to impact the body of Christ. Most of you would know him on every campus as one of the authors of the Purple Book. Come on, wave at me if you have a Purple Book and you've done a Purple Book. Pastor Steve, turn around. Keep your hands up. Come on, all campuses. And look, there's people everywhere that are using your Purple Book. Uh, it's a vital part of what we do. For us as a leadership team, we've gone through his book, Wiki Church. And Pastor Steve, you have had a profound impact on this house. And it is an honor and a privilege to have you with us. And we just want to give you the freedom and the liberty to just kind of impart to us this morning. City Bible Church, would you do me a favor on every campus? Would you stand to your feet? Give honor where honor due is due for Pastor Steve Morell. All right. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Mark. It is... It really is an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I, in talking to Pastor Frank probably months and months ago about coming here, I told him it was a little difficult for me because I honestly, his books, especially The Making of a Leader, um, how many of you are familiar with that? Do you, is that, okay. The Making of a Leader was so foundational in my early Christian life. And um, I, I said, Frank, I don't know what any longer are my ideas and what I borrowed or stole from you or plagiarized from you. I said, so I'm, I'll probably say a lot of things that are right out of your book. I, I, th that book is held together by duct tape in my office. I don't know if I have a book besides the Bible that I have used more over the last 30 years of ministry in the Philippines, seriously, and it's it had a huge impact. And, and, I, and I'm grateful to Pastor Frank and to this church. I run into graduates from your Bible school all over the world, and they're amazing people. I get to work with some of them very closely. I was speaking at the National Pentecostal Conference in Japan, and I can't tell you how many MFI people and graduates of Portland, uh, um, the, the Bible school here that I ran into, and uh, it, you, you guys, whether you are daily and consciously aware of it or not, you're having a global impact, and you have for decades. Um, and I, for one, I've benefited and the church that I've been privileged to lead for most of my life, we, I, we have the, the benefit I can't even describe. Not only 
Pastor Frank's books, but also books that Ken and Kevin Connor wrote together, Foundations of Christian Doctrine. A book, the, the one on the book of Acts, again, that became the pattern for how we built. And, and, and again, I, I just thank you for the impact that you guys have had on my life and our ministry and our churches. And um, I'm really grateful, and I, I'm, it, it, it is a privilege uh, and, and a bit intimidating to be here, the impact that you guys have had. Um, before I share the word with you this morning, I want, I think it's important to know who you're listening to. And I, I want to, I do get to travel all over the world. I just came back from Africa uh, for a couple of weeks. My wife and I were in South, Southern Africa with leaders in our movement from Botswana and Namibia and, um, and Zambia and Zimbabwe and South Africa and Nigeria. And Nigeria is not South Africa, but that guy was down there from all over that region of the world and great couple of weeks of conference. We just landed back in the States Friday night and got on a plane Saturday to come here. Um, and I, while I get to go all over the world and, and minister and see God doing great things and I'm just in awe at what I get to do, um, the most important thing to me happening in anywhere in the world is, is on the screen or it's about to be on the screen right there. That's my family. And there's nothing that excites me more. It doesn't matter how many people, like, you know, this month already, let me, let me just say that this month, um, the ministry I work with in the Middle East, and in in, in, I'll just say it, in Iran, uh, we've baptized 30, this month already, actually this is October, so in September, we baptized 30 Shia Muslims who came to faith in Christ. 30. And that's exciting. We get from my office, from my office in Nashville, we do a, a weekly Skype call with our Iranian leaders. We call it discipleship. Uh, and and it, the reports that are coming in from what God, so I, I, it thrills me as one who's prayed for the Middle East and prayed for Muslims, but that doesn't excite me as much as this. And just to introduce you to my family, that's my, oh, that's, that's the back of my head. Okay, there they are. Uh, they, my, my three sons were, are 28, 26, and 24. They were all born and raised in the Philippines. They lived there their whole lives. And then one by one, they left us and went to college in America. They all played college tennis, all had tennis scholarships to play here in the States. And uh, my youngest on the far right, Jonathan, he's 24. He's an entrepreneur, businessman, and an artist. He's, his paintings are in, in galleries around Nashville. And uh, he just got married a year ago to Mariah, who in, there are interesting cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-cultural marriage because Jonathan's a white Filipino and Mariah's a brown American. Um, she's, her grandparents came from the Philippines, but she was born and raised in Detroit, and so um, she has American culture and he has Filipino culture, and so it's, it's a little mixed up, but it's great. Um, her, parent, her grandparents were so happy that she found a Filipino to marry. Uh, and then my middle son, James, is an entrepreneur and a songwriter. He writes country music in Nashville and some upcoming uh, country singers and are, are doing his stuff and recording his music. He also writes worship. He's a prolific worship writer. And he and his brother are business partners and uh, their business is booming, doing great. They're blessed and they dream of giving millions of dollars to help the poor and to world missions. Uh, I just wanted to pay their, their phone, part of the phone bill and their insurance. Um, <laughs> And then my oldest son, William, on the left, and his wife, Rachel. Uh, William, uh, he, he's interesting. When he was about 12 years old in, at a missions conference in Manila, he felt called to France. Uh, had a real encounter with God and started uh, taking French courses. And since then, he's read his devotions every morning in his French Bible. After college, 
you know, born and raised in the Philippines, studied in America, he moved to France and taught in a little French high school in a ten, little farming community of 10,000 people. Then he went to university at, at Oxford in England, I mean, to, to, for his master's in medieval history. Now he's uh, in a PhD program in Islamic studies and learning Arabic, and he's lecturing on uh, Islamic history right now at Vanderbilt University, and he'll, he'll finish his uh, PhD sometime before I die. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, will be a missionary to the university communities. Uh, missionary supported by a university campus, hopefully. And then his wife, Rachel, and uh, Rachel's amazing uh, uh, um, musician and violinist and, um, and worship singer, and, uh, and, and then that's my only grandchild, my first of many to come, Josephine Kate, and she is the center of the universe whether you know it or not. And after raising three sons, uh, this is God's blessing to my wife, to be able to have a granddaughter and buy girl things. And uh, she started walking last week while we were in Africa. Three steps, face plant. She does it over and over. Three steps, face plant. It's, she's, um, we're going for that fourth step. That's the problem. But she's got three down and then... So anyway, that's... And, and as Pastor Mark said, my wife and I first went to the Philippines in 1984. It was a time of political turmoil. It was a time of riots in the streets. It was a time of, of um, how many of you weren't born in 1984? You weren't even born yet. Okay, wow. All right, I'm old. But we went into a, it was supposed to be a one-month summer mission trip, and then that one month turned into two months, and then six months, and then two years, and six years, and, and it, it was like the longest month in the history of the world. Um, my f wiki church, the book, was originally titled Accidental Missionary. That was, that was what it was called. And then I wrote it for our church. And the, when an, I had no thought that anybody outside of my own church would be interested in that. And then an American publisher wanted to do the book. And they said, but Steve, we have to change the name of it. Because when you put the title Missions on a book in America, nobody will buy it. I thought, that's really sad. So he said, we've got to come up with another name. So they came up with WikiChurch because there's a story I tell about Wikipedia. And what we discovered is that putting the word wiki on a book title in America has the same effect as putting the word missions. <laughs> it's magical. Um, I was, at one conference, I was introduced as the best-selling author of WikiChurch. I just sat there and laughed. I'm like, oh, gosh, we've redefined bestseller. Uh, but, um, what was I saying? but we went for what was supposed to be a short-term mission trip that turned into um, living there for 26 years. In the last six years, we've split time between, uh, my job changed in our global movement, and so it requires me to split time between Nashville, Manila, and Delta Airlines lounges. And, and so we, we, we get to serve churches and pastors all over, and it's a tremendous privilege. I was asked today to talk about discipleship and evangelism. And uh, let me say one thing about the Purple Book in conjunction, connection with that. Um, I was really enc encouraged to see that that Bible study is having an impact beyond our church. Uh, it's kind of odd, the, the, the Purple Book, because it originally was called just Biblical Foundations. And the printer in Manila, the, the original artwork was an architectural design, and it had like, um, like, like Greek architecture things on it. 
And when the first 5,000 came back to our office in Manila, it was supposed to be blue, like a blueprint. And the concept was foundations and blueprint, but it came back purple. And so we said, this is supposed to be blue, and it was purple. And so we negotiated with the printer to get them for like 70% discount. And so it just became purple. But it was called Biblical Foundations, and then everybody called it the Purple Book. And then when Zondervan wanted to publish it, they renamed it the Purple Book. Again, because Biblical Foundations wouldn't sell, but purple. They thought, I thought, that's the dumbest, ty- what do you think? And I thought, okay, you, Zondervan, you guys are pros. That's what you guys do for, so... Uh, name it Purple Book. That's fine. It makes no sense, but that's what they did. Um, I'm just, the whole American publishing thing is really a mystery to me. So let's go to the Bible, because I'll never understand that part. Uh, discipleship and evangelism. I want to read two scriptures, and Matthew 16, verse 18, and Matthew 28, verse 19. Two scriptures, and I'm reading from the ESV. Um, ESV. Here we go. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus talking to Peter, Jesus said, I will build my church. And then a few chapters later, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus talking now to all of his remaining disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just get some clarity on roles and job descriptions, okay? Here we go. According to Matthew 16, what is Jesus doing? What's his role? What's his job description? What does it say? Jesus said, I will build my church. Who is building the church? It's his responsibility. He said, I'll do that. Now, what is our responsibility? It is not my responsibility as a pastor. It's not your responsibility as church members or whatever capacity of leadership or service or volunteer or even staff. Jesus says, I'll build my church. Our job, according to Matthew 28, is what? Go and make disciples. You get it? Jesus builds a church. We make disciples. So many people are so involved in building the church, they don't have any time left over to make disciples. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not like tag team wrestling. Now, we're going to get real theologically deep right now. Don't tell me you don't watch wrestling. Or as we call it in Tennessee, wrestling. You know, when they tag, one guy gets out of the ring, the other one jumps in. It doesn't work that way with us and Jesus. Okay, Jesus, uh, you know, you're building the church, I'm going to tag you now, I'm building the church, and you go make disciples. It doesn't work. If we try to do his job, how offensive is is that for us to assume that Jesus needs our help building the church or that we're just going to do what he said he would do and we think we can do it better? And then he'll just go do our job. Jesus is not making disciples. He did that 2,000 years ago, and then he told those people, now you go make disciples, I'll build the church. The disciples are the raw material that we make disciples, and Jesus takes those disciples and builds an amazing church out of it. But if we don't do our part and we don't make disciples, there's not a whole lot of material to work with. Get the roles straight. Jesus builds the church. We make disciples. Now, when we look at Matthew 28, four key words. Here they are. The first one is the word go. It starts off, he says, go 
and make disciples of all nations go. Let me give you a real quick hermeneutics lesson. And this is really about all you need to know about hermeneutics. Now, probably a little more, but starting point basic is this. What did it mean originally when it was spoken or written? What did it mean to the person who was saying it? What was he trying to communicate? And what did it mean to those people who heard it? Because Scripture only has one meaning. There are millions of applications, but only one meaning. It cannot mean something to us that it did not mean then. So go back, get in your DeLorean, go back 2,000 years ago, ask your grandparents, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Here we are. We're standing on the mountain and Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. What did it mean? See, here's the problem with us. Discipleship in the modern Western church has become a program to help committed Christians become better Christians. Discipleship is something for if you, you, okay, you've got Christians and if you really get serious about this thing, you become a disciple. And you go to a class and you go to a course and you do a book and you do a manual and you do some certification program or something. I don't know. It's for the hardcore. But that's not what it meant. Nobody who heard Jesus that day, 2000, there was not one single person listening to him who thought when he said, go make disciples of all nations, not one person there thought he meant go find people who are already following Jesus and help them do it better. But that's what discipleship is today for us. Let's find people who are already following Jesus and let's just help them be better church people. Let's help them be better at what they already are. The people who heard Jesus say, go make disciples of all nations, what they thought he meant based on what they did, they thought he said, go find people who do not know me. Go find people who are not following me and introduce them to me and help them follow me and help them multiply what's happening here. So evangelism and discipleship, see what's happened, it was one and the same for those people. When Jesus said, go make disciples, they heard what we call today evangelism. But see, we have separated evangelism and discipleship. We have some people who are really into one and some people who are really into the other. And when we separated those Siamese twins, we killed both of them in the modern church. And so neither is effective. So we have a bunch of people who are supposedly getting saved, but their life has never changed. And then we have other people who are so saved, they have no ability to connect with non-church people whatsoever. Because they live in this religious cultural bubble that is quite frankly a little weird. Not yours. See, I didn't grow up in church. We were CEO Christians my family, Christ, Christmas and Easter only. <clears throat> I didn't go to church. Our family was probably the only one in the whole state of Mississippi growing up that did not have a Bible. My dad was in the liquor business. He made, uh, I, he made his money doing marketing for about 28 different liquor companies, Bacardi Rum, J&B Scotch, Teacher Scotch. He had a, you know, th that's what he did. We weren't real religious said the name of Jesus a lot, but we weren't religious. There were a lot of spirits. <laughs> they weren't holy. I did not go to church. The church came to me. 
the youth pastor at First Presbyterian Church in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi. He was a recent graduate of Reform Theological Seminary. We call it Reform School. In my hometown, he had his new job at First Presbyterian Church, and instead of sitting in the church office taking care of church youth, he decided for some strange reason that as a youth pastor, his job was to go find lost youth. Kind of that leave the 99 and go for the one thing. And so he appointed himself as the chaplain of my high school. This is in the 70s. I went to private high school, so it wasn't a Christian school, it wasn't religious, it wasn't a religious school, it was just a private athletic academy kind of deal. And um, he showed up at every football game, baseball game, basketball game, track meet. He was just, he, he was always there at everything and sharing the gospel. I would not go to church. Church came to me. There was no way I was going to break into the church world and the church culture. It wasn't going to happen. So the church world came into my world. I am forever grateful that a Presbyterian youth pastor broke into my culture and my world and engaged my high school and engaged me for six months when I was 16 years old. Junior in high school, he shared the gospel with me countless times, pursued me, chased me, tracked me down, harassed me until I surrendered. I don't know at the moment if I was surrendering to Ron or to Jesus. I just wanted him to leave me alone. But once I prayed his prayer, it got worse. Go. Ron took go seriously, and, and the go meant to the high schools of Jackson, Mississippi. I'm forever grateful. I have a good friend in our ministry in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is one of the least Christian countries in the world. Um, we have an amazing church that's exploding around that part of the world. Most of the people, members of our church that we planted, Bangladesh, most of them have been physically assaulted for their faith. It's not rare, it's just the norm. We only hear about those who end up in the hospital, and that's happened a number of times. But to be, have bruises and cuts because of your faith is pretty normal. Um, my dear friend, and I won't mention his name on this because we're public here, but my dear friend there, and I won't mention the city either, but in Bangladesh, one Friday morning during church, in the Muslim world Friday, Sunday's another work day, but Friday is when people go to the mosque and when they go to church. And he's preaching away on Sunday morning. And there's an aisle like this. We don't have a church building. We rent a facility from another, from a business. And he's preaching away on Friday morning during worship. They've had the singing part. Now he's preaching. And this is a local guy, close friend of mine. We don't have windows or just open spaces in the facility. And he looks out and he, while he's preaching, he sees this guy coming in. And you can tell there are those who are radical terrorists because of the way they do their beards and the outer robe that they wear. And so he recognized this as one of these Al-Qaeda radicals. And the security guard, who doesn't work for us, works for the guy who owns the building, stopped this guy from coming into the church. He didn't know what this guy was coming to church for, what it might mean. But you know what my friend did? He's watching this out of the corner of his eye while he's preaching his Friday morning sermon. And he's guy's arguing with the security guard, and he's seeing it. And then the guy walks off. Here's what my friend did. In the middle of his sermon... There was no stage. It's, it's not this place isn't this big. He gets, and he, I probably just messed up the other sites, didn't I? Oh, am I? Okay. okay. All right. And he, he didn't walk. He ran down the aisle, out of the door, down the street, 
and spent the rest of the afternoon with that guy. A couple of days later, the guy came to faith in Christ. And it turns out he really was an Al-Qaeda-trained terrorist. Today, he's a minister of the gospel. Go. Now, I've seen people run out of church to get to lunch on time, depending on when the football, the kickoff is, but the pastor ran out during his own sermon. They're probably used to that, knowing those people, though. I don't know what go means to you. Go impacted me because a youth pastor, when I was in high school, left the church building and came to my high school. He left his world and came to my world. He engaged my culture and my community. He didn't expect me to cross into his culture and his community. He crossed into mine. My Bangladeshi friend left the 99 and went after the one. And that guy is an amazing preacher of the gospel today. He was willing to die for what he believed before, and he's still willing to die for what he believes. And he's been in the hospital. He's been in the intensive care. He's been in ICU because of preaching the gospel. And he's still at it. And my buddy, our pastor there, told him, do not shave that beard off. It was, this, was the, this is the Al-Qaeda version of the Duck Dynasty beard. <laughs> he, wanted, he said, no, stick with your people. Once you cut it off, they'll know that you've changed. Stay with them. Pretty amazing what God's doing over there. You know what Go meant to a number of years ago after living in the Philippines for 24 years? Six years ago, my job changed in our ministry. It required me to start spending about half of my time in the U.S. and half in Asia. And so every couple of months, we travel back and forth, my wife and I. And, and um, we, we knew how to engage our culture and our community in the Philippines, but we were trying to figure that out in Nashville. And my wife met one of our neighbors at a neighborhood Christmas party a few years ago. And this lady had recently lost her husband and had a couple of teenage kids and was our neighbor. She was a different ethnicity than us, a different culture, looked different, different world, and she wasn't churched. My wife befriended her. They became friends. They started having coffee. We would fly to Asia. We'd come back a couple months later. My wife would, you know, they would go out to lunch and socialize. And then periodically, my wife would invite her to her Bible study group, her connect group, her, our church there in Nashville calls it a life group. And uh, anytime it was something religious, our neighbor friend would just know, not interested. And then my wife, if it was a, something social or culinary, she would all in. But the moment it got into religion, no. This went on for a year and a half. My wife was, we were praying for this lady, for her family. And my wife invited her to our Easter service a couple of years ago. And uh, she said, no, I'm, nah. But she showed up. And while I'm preaching, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm in the, I can't believe she's there. And like I always do on Sunday, because I'm not an evangelist, I'm evangelistically challenged. When I give altar calls, people become Buddhist. And, <laughs> and so what I typically do after preaching, I always have a standby evangelist. That's how I do it. I've done it for 30 years in the Philippines. So I, so I preach this gospel message on Easter, and I, I gave it to a pastor, who guy who's dear friend of mine and, and used to play for the Titans. That's why he's in Nashville and back when they were the Oilers. And, they, and then he gives his two-minute come-to-Jesus moment and all these people come down to come to Jesus and I'm looking, you know, I'm peeping. You ever peek during the altar call? So I'm kind of one eye closed, you know, sort of looking. 
She didn't budge. When the church was over, I ran, I made it back to the door and I greeted her and she goes, oh, Steve. She goes, she's so in church. She goes, I really enjoyed the lecture. <laughs> and she said, in the concert before that, that was, that was different. <laughs> I said, good, you come back anytime. And, and she goes, and I, she goes, I prayed the prayer with that man who came up after you. And I think Jesus came in my life. I think something's different. I went, yeah. She goes, but when he asked us to come up there, I got confused. I didn't know what he wanted us to volunteer for, so I just stayed here. <laughs> I said, that's okay. It worked. It's okay. And I don't know what go means to you. 30 years ago, go for Deborah and I meant go from America to the Philippines. And we didn't come back. Go for my friend in Bangladesh meant go out of that church building and leave the 99 and go after that one guy who could have had a bomb and could have, who knew what he was trying to do. Go for my wife a few years ago meant go to the neighbor right down the street and go and keep going and keep going and keep going a year and a half later. What does go mean to you? I don't know, but you need to figure that out. Go. I'm just stuck on one word. Now, the rest of them will be fast. Okay, we're running out of time. Go. I said there's four key words. Go, the second word is disciples. Go and make what? Make disciples. Our job is to make disciples. Jesus' job is to build the church. There's a big difference in a church-centered life and a Christ-centered life. A lot of people live church-centered lives. They think if they can just get their kids in church all the time, everything will be okay. If they can drag their husband and get him to church, it'll be okay. Look, I'm all for church. No problem with church. But our lives are not supposed to be church-centered, but Christ-centered. And if our lives are Christ-centered, then my question is, where are the lost people in your life? Jesus said, follow me and I'll teach you how to fish for people. If you're really following him, where are the people you're fishing for? Make disciples. What are we making? There's a lot of different words for what you and I are. Christian, how many of you are Christians? Some of you are, some of you are not, that's okay. Christians. The Bible mentions the word Christian three times. Follower, four times the New Testament speaks of people like us as followers of Christ. Believer, how many of you are believers? 26 times we're referred to as believers. Three times we're called Christians, four times we're called followers, 26 times we're called believers, and 282 times we're called disciples. So what is the overwhelming emphasis of the New Testament? Go and make Christians, go and make followers, go and make believers. No, it's go and make disciples. What is a disciple? It's someone who follows Jesus and carries a cross. There's a self-denial, sacrificial part of this. Sorry, but that's part of it. What is discipleship? It's the process of helping somebody follow Jesus. The church is filled with Christians. The church is filled with believers. The church is filled with followers. But I'm not so sure we've done a very good job of making disciples. And that's what we're called to do. Now, nations. Go make disciples of nations. This does not mean you have to get a plane ticket and a passport. That word nations in the original language there in Matthew 20, go make disciples of all nations. Don't think political entities. That word in the Greek is ethne, ethnos, where we get our word ethnicities. Go and make disciples of other ethnicities, that people that don't look like you, don't dress like you, don't eat like you. 
Break out of your cultural, ethnic comfort zone and break out of that into some people who are a little bit different. My children grew up as white kids in a brown world. When my oldest son was offered a tennis scholarship at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Lipscomb is a Church of Christ school. Church of Christ is probably the whitest denomination in the world. And when he went there, he loved the tennis coach, he loved the facilities, the opportunity to play, and all that. And I said, and I'm calling him, what do you think? He goes, oh, this is great. He goes, but dad, I've never seen so many white people in my life. I don't know if I'm gonna handle, I don't know if I can handle this. He said, son, go look in the mirror. You know what happened? He became friends with this group of Malagasy's. They're the people from Madagascar. There was a group of them on campus. And they started coming to our house all the time. And then all the different ethnicities. He just, I mean, he has some white friends too. Nothing, nothing against white people. I married one. But there's something about breaking out of our bubble into the nations that are right here. You can reach the nations right here in Portland. You know, and I don't know what nations are here. I do not know your city. In Nashville, believe it or not, it, is, it has the largest concentration of Kurds of anywhere in the world outside of the Middle East. We baptized in Nashville this summer, seven Kurdish Muslims came to faith in Christ in our church. Because you know what, we're reaching the, we're going and making disciples of the ethnos in Nashville. Some of us, my wife and I, we have to go, you know, we go somewhere else and do it. But every one of us can obey this. Go make disciples of the nations. Go find them. They're right here in your city. You know what also? Our church in Nashville, we have three Sunday mornings, three morning services in English. We have a, a, a two o'clock service in Spanish, and we have a four o'clock service in Burmese. Imagine that, Burmese. Uh, we have a, a, a well over 100 Burmese who worship there. Most of them don't speak English. There, I think there are like 10,000 Burmese in Nashville of all places. Why? You're kidding me? Burmese? Again, you've got people like that here. They're hidden. But the great commission is for us to go and find them. Not just people like us. And then what are we supposed to do? You know, interesting. I mean, have you heard of the Azusa Street Revival? Anybody heard of that? Okay, ask an old person. They'll tell you about it. hundred years ago, a little over a hundred years ago, a revival broke out in Southern California. And it was interesting. At times in church history, the church has been taking the lead in ethnic reconciliation and ethnic unity, and at other times the church has been the problem. Um, the Pentecostal historian Frank Bartleman, if you ever can find any of his books on Pentecostal history, please read them. Here's what Bartleman said about the Pentecostal revival at Azusa Street 100 years ago. The color line was washed away by the blood. Church of God in Christ, one of the largest Pentecostal black denominations in the world, the Kojic, Church of God in Christ. Anybody ever been to one of those? Church of God in Christ, okay. Um, the Kojic founder, in eight, it was founded in 1897. It predated Azusa Street. The founder, C.H. Mason, he said this. I love this. He said, the church is like the eye, a little black and a little white. Without both, we cannot see. Maybe in your community, it's a little white and a little brown, maybe a little whatever. The point is, diversity causes us to see better. Interesting that the Church of God in Christ 
founded by a black man in one of the most difficult, most violent, most um, worst times of race relations in the history of America. The Church of God in Christ, the first Pentecostal denomination in America, founded by a black man, had an equal number of black and white ordained ministers. Until 1914, when all of the white ministers broke away and started what's now called the Assembly of God. And I think when that happened, it causes us, when we all only do life in church and ministry with people who look like us, think like us, dress like us, eat like us, we miss, we don't see right. We lose something. And then finally the word baptize. Go, make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, and then what do we do? We baptize them. Baptize, that word again, I'm going to Greek you again. Again, that word means to immerse, to soak, to submerge, or we're almost lunchtime, to marinate. And when you emerge and you soak and you, 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 it's sitting there marinating, when it comes out, it's dripping. And so what he says is to baptize is more than, yes, it's a ritual. Yes, it's a thing we do. Yes, it's a sacrament. But there's more to it than that. Because when we emerge and we soak and we submerge and we come out dripping with what? Not just water, but baptize them in the name of Jesus. Do we come out of this dripping and soaked and marinated in the identity of Jesus? Or is our identity still a Ducks fan, a Seahawks fan, a white dude, a black dude, a Filipino, uh, I don't know, whatever. What's our identity? That's what discipleship does. It, 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 just, it, it gets to where the goal of disciple, of going and making disciples of all nations, and ba- the goal of that baptized part is that we are dripping with Jesus being our identity. Not that we become weird, but that that's what life is about now. That's what discipleship does. Last thought. How many of you played with Lego growing up? How many of you still play with Lego sometimes with your kids or grandkids? It's really you, but you're using them as an excuse. (laughs) Lego comes in all different shapes, sizes, colors, right? You got square ones, you got long skinny ones, you got platforms, you got one bump, four bump, six bump, eight, you know, Lego. Different shapes, different sizes, different colors. One thing in common, what is that? What is Lego, all, whether, no matter the shape, the color, the size, what does it have in common? Designed to connect. Every piece of Lego, no matter what color, what shape, what size, designed to connect on the bottom and the top. People are like Lego. Different shapes, look around you. Different sizes, different colors, all designed to connect with God and with people. Making disciples is like playing with Lego. All making disciples means is to connect with people so you can help them connect with God. It's that simple. It's not complicated. All my wife did was connect with our neighbor. And the goal was to help her connect with God. It took a year and a half, but that's okay. Discipleship 
is relationship. Relationship with God, a relationship with lost people, a relationship with one another. Discipleship is a piece of Lego. Connect with people so we can help them connect with God. It's not complicated, it's not religious, it's not burdensome and weary and driven and I've gotta keep my checklist of how many people have I shared. None of that. It's relationship. Discipleship's not a program, it's not a book, it's not a a church growth uh, trick. Discipleship is relationship on three levels. Relationship with Jesus, relationship with lost people, and relationship with believers. My charge for all of you, every campus here at this great church, is connect with people so you can help them throughout life connect with God. Lord, thank you for this great church. I pray for all of us that we would, that we would be able to connect with people who need to know you. Those who at one point knew you and they've walked away, those who are unchurched, those who are de-churched, those who are anti-churched, and even those who are in church and still don't know you. Help us connect. And Lord, anyone here in any, of, in any of these locations, and they're not connected with you, maybe they used to be, maybe they never were, maybe they were like me and they didn't grow up in church and just didn't have a clue. I pray, Lord, today they would connect with you in an eternally life-changing way. In Jesus' name, amen. The music team will come up and the pastors in locations and close the service. Thank you.